0: Amen. Good morning. Is everyone blessed this morning? Good. That's good. Now go out and find some people that aren't so blessed. Oh, no amens on that one. Yeah. A few acknowledgements of conviction. We We'll take that. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. It's on page 916. It's in the New Testament for you heathens that might be here with us this morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. Keep coming. The book of Acts is also called the Acts of the Apostles. It was written by, uh, by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. It is a historical account of what took place in the early days of the church. With the apostles, the original... 11, and with Saul, who would become Paul. It's his story that we want to focus on today. There's a theme that's been going through my my sermons and continued with the pastor's sermon last week that I, I recognized that the Lord wants us to hear this morning. Amen? I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. If you turn to Acts chapter 7, who brought your Bibles with you this morning? Who brought your Bibles on your phone? That's good. Carry it with you everywhere, right? Do you open it as often as Instagram or Facebook, though? If you wore open-toed shoes this morning, I'm going to step on your feet. Acts chapter 7. Now, I want to set the context of what we're reading here because we're not going to read through the entire story. And I encourage you, when you have an opportunity to go home and to read through chapter 6 and through chapter 7 because it's awesome. It's talking about a young person named Stephen. Stephen who was bold, who stood up for his faith against insurmountable odds. Stephen who wasn't an apostle, wasn't anyone special other than he loved the Lord, and because he pursued God, God gave him revelation. And for this revelation, An angry crowd stoned him to death, and we know of Stephen as the very first martyr in the Bible for Christianity of what was called the way at this time. Did you know that? Some of you knew that. It wasn't called Christianity. It wasn't called the church. It wasn't even called the church. That's different than the church, you know. If you know, you know. You came to church so we could have church, you know what I mean? But it was simply called the way. It was the path that people who were followers of Jesus Christ walked. I'm going this way. Not that way. You know what I mean? And so Stephen was a follower of the way. The way of Jesus. And he stood before those Jews that would cry out that he was blaspheming. And he told them the truth and the revelation of God. And he had a vision of Jesus in heaven, and when he saw that vision, he, and he declared this vision, they cried out in anger, and they took up rocks to stone him. And we're going to start in verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How many of us, when faced with an angry mob, would stand by and continue to declare our faith? to the point of death. And not just that, but then to cry out and intercede for those who are killing you. There's plenty of us in the United States, I will say, who struggle enough to stand up to our faith just because someone might say a snarky word to us, let alone face execution by stoning. We are too scared, backbowed, limp-wristed in this world today. Do you want to know why the world is sitting in darkness? It's because we refuse to show them the light. And that refusal has me wondering why. Perhaps there's no light in some of us to show them. Perhaps we are deceived. We come come to church and we believe that, oh, because I come here on a Sunday and I stand up and I listen to worship, Or even if I sit down with my arms crossed, it's washing over me. Whatever. Or I serve in a ministry area of the church. Or I go out and I feed the homeless and I identify as Christian. I've got shirts. I've got keychains. I've got a bumper sticker. I've got an app installed on my phone. That that will be enough. But coming to church to have church doesn't make you any more Christian then, if you stood in a car in a garage, you don't become a car. Or in my garage's case is a bunch of boxes that we have, haven't opened in about seven years, but it's full of stuff that we absolutely can't throw away. Can I get an amen? You know what I mean? Yeah. <coughs> Preaching to John this morning, and so. Stephen cries out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. We're going to talk about Saul because what I want to point out to you that some of you may know but many of you probably didn't know is that the first time that we see Saul in the New Testament, the man who would later go on, spoiler alert, to write most of the New Testament and to spread the gospel far and wide, the first time we see his name, he is the one that they are laying their garments at as they go to pick up these rocks to kill Stephen. I want you to picture this. He's a young man, and he's respected by this crowd. It says in verse 8 that he approved of this execution. This is why they're laying their garments at his feet. Now, the Bible doesn't give us the full description of what happened, but let me tell you based upon tradition what's likely going on. When Stephen began to do what they considered to be blasphemy, these men looked to the man that they respected, who they considered to be strongest in their faith a man who was without reproach when it came to the law. Even Paul himself writes that I knew the law and I followed the law better than anyone. And for this reason, they looked to him for approval. They didn't stop and pray about it. They weren't seeking the the scriptures to see if what they were doing was okay. They looked to Paul, Saul at the time. And Saul gives them the nod. It's like He's a capo in the family, you know what I mean? He's like, Stephen, I'm going to give you an offer you can't refuse. You're going to die, you know? This is what's going on, for real. They lay their coats down at his feet out of a sign of respect and go, yep, we're going to do what you want us to do. This is who Saul is when we are introduced to him. And so in verse 8, this is a continuation. When you're reading your Bible, don't just stop at the end of the chapter and close the book and go, Okay, I got that out of the way today. Check. Did you learn something? Do you understand what's going on? Is there context? What does the next chapter say? What is the next verse? Is that the end of the thought? Is that the end of the story? Continue. There's goodness and there's richness and there's revelation in the Word if you will get into it. Open your Bible to receive from God, not to just check something off. Now, if, if it has to start with checking off, we were talking about this Wednesday in our Bible study as John was uh, preaching or teaching. Not John with a bunch of boxes in his garage, the other John. <laughs> and I said, you know, sometimes we demonize the aspect of like, praying or, or coming to church or reading your Bible as a chore. And here's what the thing, I don't want to do that. I don't want to demonize that because for some of us, maybe it starts as a chore because we have to establish this new pattern in our lives when we haven't had it before. And I said, it's much like going to the gym. I get up in the morning and I go. I don't want to go. I do it anyway, you know? I do it anyway. I heard this powerful thing this week about motivation. So many of us get motivation wrong. We think motivation means that you feel like doing something. That's not motivation. Motivation is you do something when you don't feel like doing something. You know, when something scary happens and you act brave, that's actually bravery. Acting brave in the face of fear. Well, motivation is doing something you don't feel like doing, and so if you struggle with reading and studying your Bible, if you struggle with just carving time out of your life to spend time in prayer to God, it's okay if you set it apart as a thing that you have to do, because eventually, God is so good, it will be a thing that you want to do and look forward to do, and when it doesn't happen, you miss doing, but God. Even if it starts somewhere, get into it and continue to read to get something out of it. I, When I was at the youth pastor for 15 years, that's why I don't have any hair up here, I used to tell young people all of the time, if you're going to go to college, go for the right reasons. So many p- people go to college to get a degree. Very few people go to college to learn something. If you've ever worked with an idiot college you know, graduate, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm a college graduate, just not the idiot part, amen. Amen? Thank you. Yeah. Good grief, people. <laughs> Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. That day, it was, it was Stephen's stoning that started that movement of persecution against the church. So up to this point, they've been an annoyance, okay? Up to this point, they've been heretics. They've been people that are blasphemers. They've been people that are moving away from their faith in the opinion of many of the Jews in Jerusalem. But at this moment, things have changed because of the violence that has been incited by Saul. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, Saul talks about this later on in Acts 22. You don't need to turn there, but he says he's talking to these Roman authorities, about his life. He's talking about what God did for him. At one point he says, And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned um, and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Saul instituted all of this violence. Y'all following me? Okay. I'm glad you're following because we're going to jump to chapter 9. Because it's within this context. Saul has instigated this violence. He stood by, he gave the approval, and he watched this young man who loved the Lord, who had revelation that Saul had never had. He saw things Saul had never seen, and he understood things Saul never understood, despite all of Saul's studying and strict application to the law in his life. Do you understand how infuriating that must have been? His only recourse would be to think, this must be blasphemy, because there's no way this young man has seen things that I haven't seen, or has some revelation that I haven't received. And he goes out in this blind rage, this murderous rage, to bring blood to the doorstep of anyone who followed the way. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Let's just stop. You might be confused right now. Maybe in the past week you turned on some channel called TBN or something else, and someone said your life is great, your life is perfect, and if you follow God, no harm will ever come to you. That's not the gospel. You want to serve God? There's nothing greater. There's no greater calling than we can have in our life to serve, than to serve God. That is the meaning and our purpose upon this earth. And there is promised. Trial and tribulation. There is promised hardship, and I would rather choose that all day every day than to live apart from him now or for eternity. The next time you see some TV preacher telling you your life is going to be great, just send a donation, turn off the television. Sorry, that's not in my notes. Let's go on. Let's see, where are we? 17. Thank you, everybody. I'm going to step off my soapbox here. Let me go my other soapbox. (laughs) So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You know what I love about this translation? When they question, isn't this the man that made havoc in Jerusalem? The answer is yes, and now he's going to continue to do so in the name of Jesus. To make havoc. That's not the title of my message, but it's a good one, right? to make havoc. We are called to do this. Saul did not get saved, be healed, be baptized, and then, okay, well, let me go ahead and just start going through some things and prepare myself for ministry. Are you following me? He immediately, immediately went out and began to proclaim the revelation that he had received of who Jesus is. Amen? That's what we are called to. Now, the thing that is significant in this is not just (laughs) the violence that Saul had participated in and and provoked, but the dramatic 180-degree change. You know, I have read the Bible through, cover to cover, multiple times. I have read the New Testament over and over and over. And you know the one thing that sticks out to me that is at such a contrast to the way that we preach the gospel in our country today? Nobody, no apostle, no disciple, no message, no epistle, nothing in there has ever said that I have read, you get saved and then just continue being who you were. nothing ever it's a dramatic change it's a 180 degree to put this into like new context this would be like the leader of isis or hamas suddenly changing and declaring that jesus is lord that's what happened In our context, Saul was a murderous terrorist leader for a religious zealous organization who was persecuting people because they had a different faith than him. And instead, he gets radically changed and turns to their side to the point that he's eventually beheaded for his beliefs and faith. That's the truth of this story. It's not a, oh, he began to kind of suddenly change. Listen, I believe in a work of sanctification in our lives, but it begins with a 180-degree change from who we are to who we now are. And God will continue to work in us. It says even here that as he preached, as he preached, as he preached, Saul was strengthened. And God continued to give him revelation. You know, I I, I tend to think about, I think back when I was young, and I was a zealous 20-year-old preaching, you know, and I made some mistakes in my sermons, and I made some mistakes in my studies, and the Lord has continually showed me the revelation, and I go, I just hope Saul messed up from time to time, you know? And then the Lord's like, well, it's actually like this. So I was like, oh, got it. But it's no longer, it's what I was preaching last time. We think that there's this struggle. No, 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 no. The struggle goes away the minute that you submit yourself to God. And when we are truly saved, I'm not here to judge anybody's salvation, and neither should you. But examine ourselves. Do we have fruit? Is it lasting? Have we changed? Do we keep going back? How can you backslide if you're going forward? You can't. You only backslide if you stop. And so we must pursue God with everything that we are. So why don't we sometimes, and I believe that the story is is manifested here. The reason is manifested in Paul's story, because he was blinded. And while he was physically blinded and said there were things like scales that fell off of his eyes, I believe that was because it was a manifestation of what Saul was dealing with spiritually. Saul was spiritually blind up to this point. Saul was in Jerusalem during Jesus' ministry. He heard the rumblings and the murmurings. He did not pursue Jesus. He did not go to where these supposed miracles were taking place. No. And he heard of the resurrection, and he sees these people who are talking about it. And what does he do? Does he stop and debate them? Does he stop and pray? Does he seek God? No. He incites a riot against them and violence because he was blind. And we see this time and time and time again. In fact, Isaiah repeatedly, we don't need to turn there, in chapter 43, 56, 59, he is repeatedly saying that blindness is spiritual rebellion that is affecting apostate prophets and priests who are leading people astray. Why are they leading them astray? They're blind. See, you can't follow the way when you can't see it. Psalm 146a says, The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lives up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And then Isaiah 42, verse 16, he says, I will bring the blind by the way they do not know. You hearing me? I will bring the blind by the way they do not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. Isaiah is echoed again in Luke chapter 1, verse 79. When speaking of Jesus, he says he comes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Oftentimes when I pray, I pray that very thing over me and over you, that God would use us to bring light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. But we can only bring light when we are not blind ourselves. This concept of light and darkness, to sit in darkness and to be blind are all the same thing. It speaks to an ignorance to the real ways of God versus the revelation of how you are supposed to live. So it's no surprise if you understand where Saul was, as he later became known as Paul the Apostle, that when in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, he writes, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There's that, there's that context again. Veiled, unable to see, unable to recognize. Are you following In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a lot in that sentence. Let's go back and read that again. Verse 4. In their case, this is the people who are lost. The God of this world, the enemy, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. This is why people struggle to receive because their minds have been blinded to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we proclaim for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In the very next chapter, this was chapter 4, at the the middle of the next chapter, this is where he writes this part that we are so familiar with. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's not kind of like he used to be, but a little bit better. Right? He's not turning over a new leaf and trying day by day. He is not a sinner saved by grace, praise God, and trying his very best to put behind him the things that he continues to struggle with. He's a new creation. He's entirely new. He's not who he was. She's not who she was. You know, part of the problem, I believe, is that the gospel that is preached today is incomplete. Pick up a a track sometime. For those of you who don't know, it's a piece of paper with a message written on it to hand out to people. And I don't want to, like, demonize tracks or bash people that write these and, and praise God for those who... Go out there, but can, you, can we think about the context of what we've done? We've taken the message of the gospel, and we've tried to simplify it and write it down so that you don't have to learn and articulate it. So that you can go out and you can hand it to somebody and pray that you're planting a seed, and hopefully it'll be enough. And that's something. That is something. I don't want to take away from what that is. I've done it is it effective? Is it really meaningful? At work, I tell guys sometimes when they're being ineffective in their job, in sales, all that they're doing is spraying and praying. There's no focus, right, pastor? There's no focus. There's no direction. They're just like trying whatever. Let's let's send these seeds out into the world and see what comes back. Because of this process that we've landed on, most people who attend church cannot articulate their faith or defend their faith. They cannot cite scriptures of why they believe what they believe. And they have a difficult time faced with any challenge to articulate the necessary need of why people should pray a prayer to a Savior that they cannot see. We need to change this church. Each and every one of you, study to show thyself approved. You should be able to articulate why you believe what you believe, and not just should be able to, you ought to be doing it. Instead of handing someone a piece of paper, you say, Hi, my name is Chris. God saved me when I was a teenager. He has done mighty things in my life. He created you. He loves you. And I want to talk to you about Jesus. And I know that sounds goofy, But we could talk about the weather, we could talk about the Spurs, we could talk about how terrible the Cowboys were in the playoffs all day long. Let's talk about something with lasting meaning, especially in the Cowboy situation. That's not lasting at all. But let's talk about something with eternal significance, shall we? Have you ever attended church? Have you ever read the Bible? What do you believe? Why don't we have a conversation that can have eternal meaning? So, I digress. I digress. These tracts have taken the gospel and they have simplified it to this point, almost every single one I've ever seen. You were born into sin. And you are in need of a Savior. And without that salvation, you will spend an eternity in hell, separated from God. But Jesus died so that your sins could be forgiven. And if you will pray, a prayer and confess with your mouth that He is Lord and invite Him to live in your heart and be Lord of your life, then He will save you from eternal destruction and you will spend eternity in heaven with Him. And all of that's correct, right? That's not incorrect. Let me tell you what it is it's incomplete. Because the gospel is not Jesus gonna get you out of hell. The gospel, Kim, is Jesus is going to transform you from who you currently are to who he actually created you to be. That's what Paul is saying. You are no longer that wretched thing, you are redeemed in Christ, and you are a new creation. You have stumbled around your entire life blind to the truth of things. And now the light of eternity, the glorious hope of Christ has come. And he has taken the scales off of your eyes. And in that truth, now you have been set free. And that freedom should make you run. That freedom should be like the shackles have fallen off. And you can take off as fast as you possibly can. I'm a big reading rainbow fan. Roots too. Come on. I'm going to tell you a story. I was telling this to John Foster this week that stirred this message up in me. It's been stern. Because I want you to understand how we sometimes are, but how the world is too. I wear corrective lenses. Anybody else? Show of hands? I, uh, I grew up in the, in the Rio Grande Valley. I was raised by a single mom. and We didn't have a whole lot of money. It was just me and my younger brother and my mom. And, uh, and I had really great eyesight, you know, as most little kids do for a long, long time. And then at some point, my eyes began to falter. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. They, I know they still do it. I don't know at what point they started doing this. I'm going to assume for a long, long time. But uh, you would go, at least annually, and they would, they would give you an exam in school in the nurse's office, right? And they would check your eyesight, and check for scoliosis. And I'm like, yeah, my back's straight, whatever, you know, and all of this stuff. And then they would send a report home. And, and starting in, like, the fourth or fifth grade, my mom started getting these reports that said, may need eyeglasses. And she would go, your sight's fine, you know? And so the next year, I'd go and I'd get my exam. And it would, I'd come back home, and I'd go, hey, Mom, they're saying I need glasses. And she's like, "They're, they're you're fine. They're just trying to get me to spend more money. In context, I'm like, why, why would they have that conspiracy? That's kind of weird. Sixth grade, Mom says I need glasses. Well, we don't have the money for glasses right now. Seventh grade, Mom, I need glasses. Are you seeing a trend here? So I had teachers that begin to have me sit closer to the board in class because I was sitting in the back and they could tell I was like, you know? So I was sitting up front because my grades started to falter and uh, my mom wasn't getting me glasses. Seventh grade goes by, Kim. Eighth grade goes by. Carlos, when do you think I got my glasses my first time? Take a guess. Nope. Sophomore year, Sophomore year of high school. Now, there's, it's funny, in retrospect, maybe there's some significance to this, but I got saved before I could see. It's pretty good, right? My spiritual eyes were open while I was going like this in the natural. So, no, my sophomore year, I had gotten saved, and as luck would have it, I met this young girl who was a pastor's daughter. Yeah, I know. Hey, God works in mysterious ways, you know. It wasn't Candy. She's a different pastor's daughter that I met later. But I met this girl, and she wore glasses, and as we were talking, becoming friends, she would tell me, like, you, you really need glasses. Like, your eyesight's worse than my eyesight. I remember she gave me her glasses one time. I'm like, ah, these actually help a little bit. And so she started talking to me, and, and she told me, like, hey, I wear contacts. You should just get contacts. And so I'm like, really? That kind of makes me nervous. She's like, oh, it's really easy. I'll help you with it, whatever. So I finally convinced my mom. This is like April for my birthday, my, the end of my sophomore year of high school. Can I get some corrective lenses? And she's like, okay. And I'm like, I'm going to get contact lenses. Play sports, I march, band, all this stuff. That'll be good. She's like, okay, whatever. So we go, and for anybody who's ever had glasses, maybe you can really identify with this moment, but I'm standing there in the optometrist's office and I've had my exam and they've put the contacts in my eyes and we're standing there. My mom's paying for everything and I turn and I look out the window and down the street, I can read a church's fried chicken sign. And I was like, what the heck? Is this what it's like for the rest of you this whole time? You could see like this? I felt robbed for about six years. I was like, I have been walking completely blind to what was real around me. Are y'all hearing me? I walked around in my life. I was completely ignorant of how things really were. Not just what colors were, but how sharp and crisp and what signs said. It turns out there are billboards for reasons. I just thought they were pretty colors at some point because I couldn't read anything on any of them. And so it is when you're lost. Listen, when someone is lost, it's not that they are choosing to go this way. They don't know any other way. They don't see the way that God has set before them because they're blind. They are literally sitting in darkness, in the shadow of death. And they need light. They need light. And we are called to be light. We are called to be that thing, to go forth because we can see, praise God. Because God has opened our eyes and he has redeemed us and we're no longer sitting in that dark place. I wish sometimes more of us would remember the place that we came from. You know, a practice I begin to put into my own life is that when it says to take up your cross daily and follow, I think back to who I was before I met him. I think back to who I was before Jesus came into my heart. And I think about that wretched person, and I feel bad for that person, that lost young boy. And I'm thankful that God shined his light into my bedroom to save me. Each and every one of us was a wretched, sinful person. We have no pride in who we are today because God has redeemed us. He gifted us the faith to believe. He gave us the grace and mercy that we needed. And He saved us of our sins. And He has come to transform you so that you look nothing like who you were. That's the gospel. That's the truth of Jesus' ministry in our lives. And that's the truth that we now should be free and compelled to preach to this entire world. If you can see, grab the hand of someone who can't and lead them into the light. When you are struggling in the darkness, look to the light. Amen? And God will take this country and this world and our communities and all of these people that we see on a regular basis. Listen, if you will will grab a hold of this concept, I will promise you this. If you will grab a hold of this concept that people that you can't, you, you're like, I can't believe they live this way. If you will understand in your heart that what is happening is that they are living in this blind darkness, then you will understand better. I have many friends that I pray for and I talk to on a regular basis who I know aren't saved. And I see how many in the world live. And they think this is normal. They, it's like I did before I could see With my contacts, before I could read Church's Fried Chicken, I thought what I saw was normal. They think what they're doing is normal. They think this is the life that you're supposed to live. This is how things are supposed to go. This is what you're supposed to do. They're not going to come out of that on their own. They're only going to come out of that through the power of Christ. And you know how God likes to move in miracles? He wants to use you. He wants to use me. Amen? Amen. So if you can see, say amen. Amen. If you are in the light, say amen. Amen. And if you are going to go drag people out of the darkness now, say amen. amen. Amen and amen and amen. Give the Lord praise this morning. Come on. Thank you, Lord, for you are good.